The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. Okay, a couple of announcements before we get started. First of all, remember, Saturday at 3 o'clock, not what's written on your calendar, 3 o'clock, the trim the tree. And I know some of y'all occasionally like to bake cookies. And uh, so if you want to bake anything for Saturday afternoon, you can get a hold of Ann Wright and let her know. She's sort of shepherding that event. Then next week, there will be no Bible class on Tuesday night. Instead, there will be several folks down here setting up tables and everything for the computer training seminar we're hosting that will be all day Thursday and Friday. So when you're here next Thursday night, we are having class next Thursday night. But things will be different. We'll have tables. Y'all might even like that. Have tables, put your Bible on the table and take notes. And we may create a problem here. Okay, cancel the conference. Okay. Um, Ladies' Prayer Brunch on the 9th at 10.30 a.m. at the West Falls. Now, on Monday the 4th, there is a need for several volunteers to come down and help out with a mailing that we're sending out for Chafer Seminary. We have, we just received these uh, manuscripts, uh, the pamphlets we printed up on the crisis in pastoral leadership, and we're sending those out along with a letter for Chafer Seminary. And these need these envelopes all need to be stuffed and mailed on. On Monday, so if you want to help or can help, see uh, Sue Daly or Sandy Voucher, and they're they're going to start at 9:30 a.m. on Monday morning. I think that covers the announcements. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to Thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against Thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, Sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started this evening, let's have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to make sure you're in fellowship and ready to focus on the word, and then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're indeed grateful that we have the opportunity to study your word this evening, that we can take the light of your word and under the teaching ministry of God, the Holy Spirit, shine its light into the recesses of our thinking, that we may expose that which is human viewpoint and replace it with divine viewpoint. Father, we pray that we would be responsive to the challenge of the scriptures we study this evening. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Before we get started in our study of Hebrews... I want to start reading some things to you from the uh, 
newsletters that come out from Voice of the Martyrs. I think this is great because it gives us a little exposure to what other Christians are going through and how there is the gospel is making an impact in some pretty tough areas around the world. The excerpt that I want to read this evening is uh, contained in a book that they have published containing various testimonies from the underground Iranian church. You know, we always see on the news is what goes on with uh, Ahmadinejad and their various threats against Israel and against the West. And it doesn't look like a very, like too many good things are going on over there. But there is a tremendous underground movement in Iran where hundreds, if not thousands, of, of college-age young people are turning to Christianity and coming to faith in the gospel. And it's extremely difficult because of the religious persecution and oppression that exists in any Islamic society. So in this excerpt begins with a quote from one of the young men involved in uh, giving out the gospel. And he says, Now I was kicked out from another place, but many had found the Lord. Then authorities wanted to isolate me even more and sent me to another town a hundred miles away. They made me drive way out of town for four years to an isolated clinic because I refused to grow a beard or wear clothing like theirs and be an informer. About 300 people came to my clinic. This is from a, uh, apparently from a doctor. About 300 people came to my clinic each month, even in the desert area. Every day I drove about 100 miles back and forth. I had to get up at 6 in the morning, drive outside the city, and across the de- desert to get there on time. The authorities thought they were punishing me, but Jesus used me to reach new people. And then there's a note that this man was arrested and taken to police headquarters, and there he was interrogated. And he says in his testimony, in this two-story building, there's the basement where all the torture is going on. Upstairs is where they do the interrogations. Even with the blindfold, I knew they were taking me all the way down. We walked to a room, which I saw later only had one door, no windows, no light. They said, sit down, and then a man behind me pulled off the blindfold. They shined a bright light in my eyes so I wouldn't see who was interrogating me. The man behind the light said, tell us the truth. We'll we'll help you out. What are you doing? Tell us and we will help you not to be on the bad list. We see some suspicious people come and go to your office and ask ask for you specifically. There are also some Afghani and some Armenian people. Tell us what's going on. Well, I got a little angry at them and said, whoever comes to me, it's because I'm a doctor. They need help. Later on, the police released him. He goes on to say, we must move every, that is, move his clinic every two or three years, We have moved six times so far. This is the seventh place we have moved to in 13 years, yet this is not important. We don't want any home here because we know where our home is. We are always ready to go to our main home with Jesus. I'm not afraid of death because I know where I am going. John 3.16 tells our family, when you believe and seek Jesus, you have abundant life. You have everlasting life. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So that's just one of many testimonies of Christians who are actively involved in handing out Bibles, 
passing out tracts and giving the gospel to people in an, in an Islamic society. So we need to constantly be in prayer, not just for missionaries that are in Iran or in Jordan. There's the Jordan Theological Seminary. The president is um, a man uh, I went through seminary with. There is uh, other, other works and teams of missionaries going into Islamic countries all over the world, and their lives are in danger every single day. So we should just generally be in, in prayer for them. All right, well, let's go to our study this evening in Hebrews. We're in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 9, but before we start off in Hebrews 6, 9, it's going to be necessary, I think, for us to go back and do some review and reorient our thinking so we know how we got to where we are. We're just about in the middle of the of the book now, but we need to go back and see what has gone on already. I want to start off by just reading this this next these next couple of verses to you so we understand where we're headed. When we go back and do this review, it's pointed to a particular direction. We have to understand how we got from one one to this these particular verses. So let's just look at nine and ten. The writer then says, but, contrast, but, beloved, we are confident of better things for you. Remember, he just gave them this dire warning that if, uh, that because they've become dull of hearing, they have, um, uh, they can be in danger of regressing to the point where it's, for all practical purposes, just about impossible to recover spiritually. But then he shows the hope. And that's the point of this next section is no matter how bad it gets, no matter what you've done, no matter how spiritually regressive you have been, no matter how carnal you have been, there is always hope in the grace of God. God's grace always provides the solution. So he says, but beloved, we are confident of better things concerning you. Yes, things that accompany salvation, though we speak in this manner. For God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love, which you have shown toward his name, in that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. Now, there's a couple of things that we need to point, point out here to just keep in the front of your mind as we go through our review. And that is this statement that he says, God won't forget your work and labor of love, And as grace-oriented believers who understand a gospel of grace that's based on the work of Christ and not on the basis of our works, too often grace-oriented believers have a problem when it comes to passages like this and they start talking about works. So we have to understand the doctrine of works in the Scripture. Now, most of you are pretty familiar with what this signifies because we've gone through this uh, uh, several times as we've gone through our study on Sunday mornings in those seven letters to the seven churches in Revelation, each time those evaluation reports begin, they begin with this statement from Jesus that I know your work. So work isn't a bad word. It's not like Maynard G. Krebs, if you remember Dobie Gillis, and work! You know, it's just not automatically something terrible. So let's go back to Hebrews 1.1 and take a run through the first six chapters to end up where, where we are now in 6.9. Remember, the theme of Hebrews is to challenge Christians who are on the verge of just chunking it. They're on the verge of just, 
just stopping and, and reverting back to Judaism. These are believers who've come out of a Jewish background. They were probably priests who functioned in the service in the temple. And they are on the verge of going back into Judaism. So the theme from the writer is to challenge these Christians to remain faithful in these last days. And that challenge is just as valid for Gentiles at any time not to give up, not to just reach a, stat, a state of, of satisfaction in the Christian life, but continue to hold fast and press forward uh, to spiritual maturity. So Hebrews is a challenge to remain faithful and steadfast in our spiritual growth today in light of future service in the millennial kingdom. That's what it's oriented toward, is the future. We have to remember the decisions that we make today determine who we are, not only today, but they will also determine our role and our responsibility in the millennial kingdom and in heaven. Now, as we go through this book, I pointed out in the introduction that I believe that Hebrews really isn't an epistle. It's often referred to as an epistle, and in almost every Bible you've got, it refers to the epistle. And if you got, if you have a Schofield Reference Bible, and are some versions of the King James, it might even say the Epistle of Paul to the Hebrews, even though the text doesn't identify the author. So we have to be careful. But it's not an epistle because it doesn't fit the standard format of an epistle. There's no salutation to the Hebrews, grace and peace to you. There's no uh, closing remarks at the end. And there's a number of other things that you normally have associated with a, a letter that aren't here. It probably is a written out sermon, much like the transcript that we published from the message on crisis in pastoral leadership. This was a sermon that was taken and then transcribed, written out, and sent as a letter. I believe James, the epistle by James, is the same kind of thing. And there are elements in here because of its organization that really fit more of an, uh, a verbal instruction pattern than a written tool. And that has to do with its, with its structure. There's five basic points that are made in the outline of the, uh, of, of the book. And we studied the first three. The first section goes from 1-1 to 2-4. Actually, 1-1 through 4 is an opening prelude where the basic theme or foundation for the doctrinal message, the teaching, the, the exposition is laid out and it's grounded in the uh, ultimate revelation, completed revelation of God in Jesus Christ. So we have this opening prelude and then there's a doctrinal exposition or I've used the word a didactic uh, explanation that is a teaching it is a, an instruction to the church related to various passages of Scripture. And, of course, as we saw from 1.5 to 14, there are several Old Testament passages that are cited and woven together by the writer of Hebrews to make his point. So it begins with uh, the doctrinal exposition, the didactic section, and then it's followed by an exhortation and warning. And that's what we have as we go through each of these sections. So just to review the outline, we go through the first section, and then the second section picks up a couple of main ideas in the first section, develops that out uh, in the doctrinal exposition in 2.5 to 3.6, 
And then beginning in 3.7, we have our practical exhortation. An exhortation is an application and a challenge mixed together. It's taking the teaching that we just had and driving it home in terms of a practical application. So, if you want to understand how the first century apostles understood application, this is a good place to go. You read through this section, 3.7 to 4.13, most Christians today would probably have a problem with this as application because you have to know too much Old Testament to understand it. And they want to just have something that's easy to take home and chew on. So you have our practical exhortation and warning, 3.7 to 4.13. Then our third section, the one we're in, from 4.14 to 6.20. But 4.14 to 5.11 is a fairly brief section that is interrupted. It's interrupted because the writer just says, but you're just not ready to hear what I'm saying about the high priesthood of Melchizedek. You're too dull of hearing. And he just starts to blast them for their spiritual regression. And he gives them this dire warning in verses 4 through 8. But then he comes back and in a very encouraging, grace-oriented manner, he says, but beloved, we're convinced of better things for you. Don't give up. We know we're confident that there are better things for you. So section 3 is composed of that uh, doctrinal or didactic uh, exposition from 4.15 to 5.10. And then from 5.11 on, we have our uh, practical exhortation and warning. So that's the structure that we've gone through. Well, let's just hit some of the high points that we studied. In those first four verses, there's an emphasis on the completion of, the culmination of God's revelatory process in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. The writer begins by saying, In times past, God has revealed himself uh, to the fathers through the prophets, but now in these last days, he has spoken, finished, finished work, he has spoken, completed action, he has spoken to us by means of his Son. I want you to pay attention to this terminology that we have. He has spoken to us by a son again and again and again. As we go through Hebrews, you ought to underline every time you have verbiage related to God speaking or God saying, God calling, because there's this this constant theme of God speaking which implies and demands our obedient response. And you see this thread that runs all the way through the uh, book of Hebrews. So there's this culmination. Everything in history has led to the revelation of God in the Lord Jesus Christ. As Paul said in Galatians 4.4, in the fullness of times, God brought forth His Son. He had to wait for the right time in human history. He had to prepare the nations and He had to prepare Israel for this revelation of His Son. He couldn't just do it. Jesus could not have come in Adam's generation or in Abraham's generation or in Moses' generation or in Daniel's generation. The time wasn't right. It had to wait for that right time. And in this revelation, we learn several things about the Lord Jesus Christ. We learn... Wait a minute, I lost... I didn't have a slide on that. Okay. Uh, we learned that he was the heir or is the heir of all things. This is a key 
concept in the whole book of Hebrews is inheritance. Jesus Christ is the heir of all things, and we become joint heirs with him. The emphasis, secondly, is on the Son as the creator of the world. And then in verse 3, the writer goes on to describe uh, the Son as the exact duplicate of the Father in essence and in power. So the Son is not just the Son in terms of humanity. He's the Son in terms of deity and is completely equal to the Father in His essence. Further, he goes on to emphasize that it is the Son who has entered into history. He is the one who paid the penalty for our sins as a man. So the hypostatic union lies behind the explanation in verses 1 through 4. The Son is man. As perfect man is true humanity, enters history, pays the penalty for sin, and then because of his victory over death in the resurrection, he is promoted to, and he is, a, he is uh, brought to, he ascends to heaven where he sits at the right hand of God the Father on the Father's throne as we've seen in our study of Revelation chapter 3, verse 21. And in his humanity he is elevated over the angels so that now there is a human being sitting at the command post of the universe and a human being has been elevated over the angels and it is the second Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ, who's in that position and we will join him. That's the exciting thing. We join him as joint heirs in that inheritance which culminates in his kingdom and we went through the whole study on the ascension and session of the Lord Jesus Christ and how that doesn't come to completion until he returns at the second coming Daniel 7 the son of man comes to the earth to establish his kingdom that's when the inheritance uh, is realized so these four verses provide a brief but a jam-packed and brilliant explanation of the Son in terms of his past accomplishments. But what's involved here is that these past accomplishments are set in the context of his future destiny, his future destiny as an heir, and that sets the foundation for the rest of the book. Then from verses 5 through 14, the writer connects the superiority of the Son and his accomplishments uh, with his destiny to rule the planet as the Davidic son. He cites all these various psalms, and he interconnects this with the realization and the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. Now, Jesus Christ came. Uh, the, uh, Gabriel announced his uh, coming and, uh, and announced to Mary that he was going to come and rule on the throne of his father David. So his birth is announced in terms of reigning as the Davidic heir, and he came to offer the kingdom. John the Baptist said, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus announced, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The disciples were all sent out to Israel, not to Gentiles, but to Israel to announce, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, and the Jews rejected it, and they rejected him as the king, and they crucified him. So the kingdom is postponed. It is not uh, it wasn't partially inaugurated. That's what a lot of people say today is that we're in some form of the kingdom. And there's a lot of problems with that. We're not in any form of the kingdom. We are in the church age. So in verses 5 through 14, there's this emphasis. And the writer builds just line upon line. He takes each of these Old Testament passages and he uh, weaves them together to 
bring our attention upon this future kingdom that's characterized by an eternal throne and a scepter of righteousness in that particular kingdom. But all of this leads us to the conclusion that the angels who are now over us will in the future be under us. And so part of their responsibilities today is that these angels minister to those who will inherit salvation. And that is in uh, the last verse of the first chapter. Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for those who will inherit salvation? And it's not saying for those who are saved past tense, but for those who will inherit salvation. It is a future-oriented concept that the inheritance of our salvation that's realizing the the fullness of our inheritance when salvation is completed phase one phase two and phase three when we're absent from the body face to face with the lord and the lord comes in his kingdom that's when we inherit salvation so it is a future oriented uh, concept and that leads to the first warning Therefore, don't neglect salvation. The salvation isn't what we got when we trusted Christ as Savior. The salvation is what we're headed toward when the realization of this whole process comes to its culmination at the judgment seat of Christ and then our return with Jesus Christ to rule and, and reign on the earth. And that is Hebrews 2.3. How shall we escape, that is escape judgment, if we neglect so great a salvation, see the Jews neglected what they had in the desert. That's the backdrop for that. They neglected what they had, and so they were judged. And if that happened to them, what more will happen to us if we neglect all that we have in relationship to our destiny? And the warning is that we need to we need to focus on our spiritual life, living each day in light of eternity. Then we come into the Second section, and in the second section, there's a doctrinal exposition. Doctrinal exposition is from 2.5 down to chapter 3, verse 6. And in that instructional or pedagogical section, as he's teaching them on the basis of these Old Testament ideas, he starts to unpack even more this whole idea of Jesus being elevated over the angels. See, that's the point he establishes in that first section. Jesus is superior to the angels at the, at the ascension. He's elevated over the angels, and the angels now serve us who are going to be heirs of this future salvation. Now let's unpack that concept and see where that leads us. So he starts off in verse 5, For he has not put the world to come of which we speak in subjection to agents. In other words, the future age, the millennial age, isn't in subjection to angels. It's in subjection to the bride of Christ. It's in subjection to us. So that's uh, what he begins to develop. So he emphasizes the point that man was made lower than the angels, because his future destiny is to be elevated over the angels. We're in a training ground right now, unlike anything the angels went through. Second, he points out that Jesus Christ's true humanity has been elevated above the angels. He's our pioneer, and he sets the course so that now we realize that a human being is over the angels and at the command post of the universe. And that's in verse 9. Then in verses 10 to 13, he points out that in his humanity, not as God, not in his deity, not using his omniscience, omnipotence, and omnipresence, not utilizing all of his powers, 
but he points out that Jesus in his humanity is qualified to go uh, be on the basis of the humility of obedience. He's qualified, the humility of obedience and his spiritual growth takes him through maturity and adversity testing, qualifies him to go to the cross. So Jesus Christ qualifies in his humanity by using the same tools, the same doctrines, the same Holy Spirit that you and I use. So that, now don't take me wrong here, so that in a theoretical sense, it's possible for us, once you're saved with the Holy Spirit, to be sinless. Now, none of us are ever going to do that. No one's going to do that. I'm not teaching sinless perfection. Don't take me wrong. I'm just saying that theoretically, that's possible. Because if you were to start walking by the Spirit from the instant you were saved until you died, you would never sin. But we still have a sin nature, even though its power is broken, its presence is still there, and we're all going to, all going to sin, and we're never going to be sinless, and no one's ever going to uh, reach perfection. But the pattern was set by Jesus in His humanity to show that it's there. You can do it. The Holy Spirit is powerful enough to do it, and the Word of God is true enough for you to do it. The problem is your own volition. You're just not going to do it. But grace is going to provide, always provide the solution. And when you fail, we've got First uh, John 1, 9 and forgiveness and so that we can continue to press on and grow towards maturity. He points out that Jesus is the pioneer of our spiritual life. He's the archegos. He is the one who's the pathfinder who sets the course for us and we follow in his example. And he concludes that since Christ had victory over sin and over death, he is promoted to the position of our high priest. That's what all this is going from. The first section laid the groundwork that Jesus is superior to the angels. He's promoted over the angels. Why does he get promoted over the angels? Because in his humanity, he went through all this adversity testing and in true humility, never yielding to arrogance, never sinning, he qualifies to go to the cross and because, as it's going to be pointed out in the application section, because he's tested in every point as we are, yet without sin, he is now a high priest who can commiserate with our weaknesses. That's where all of that is headed. So, because he goes through the whole process of testing just as we do, he's qualified for that promotion to be the high priest. So he moves from superiority over the angels to his being tested in his humanity to qualify him to be the high priest. Guess what's going to be developed in the next section? His high priesthood. See how logically this flows? He's going to then try to show, he's going to then start to show why the high priesthood of Christ is so important. And, and it's, first you have to understand that it's not, a, not an ironic high priesthood. It's a Melchizedekian high priesthood. But you're too spiritually dull to listen. So then he goes through his diversion in the warning passage of Hebrews 6. And at the end of that, in Hebrews 6.11, he's or in about 6, uh, thirteen. Then he begins to come back again to the point he was trying to make about the high priesthood of Christ and its Melchizedekian uh, background. And that's what gets developed in Hebrews 6, 7, and 8. So we, that sort of gives you an idea of where he's going. It's always helpful to have an idea of where you're going so you understand how you're getting there. So, back to 
the exhortation and warning in 3.7 to 4.13. That section, you remember, focuses on the importance of understanding our future rest in the millennial kingdom, that that is analogous to the rest, R-E-S-T, the rest the Jews were to experience once they entered into the promised land. And so the illustrations in, in the warning section from 3.7 down through 4.10 all focus on that failure of the Exodus generation to enter the rest because they didn't mix uh, the promises of God with faith. And so because of their failure to pursue spiritual growth, they, they failed to realize their inheritance. They jeopardized their inheritance. They didn't enter into the land. The only two that entered into the land and realized their inheritance were Caleb and Joshua because they trusted God. But that whole generation, including Aaron and Moses, all failed to trust God at some point or another, and so they lost their inheritance in the land. They never were allowed to enter into the land. And we look at that section, and three times we have a quotation from Psalm 95.7. In verse 7 it reads, Today, if you will hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. And then it's quoted again in verse 15. Today, if you will hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. And then again in 4.7, Today, if you will hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. What's he trying to say? Don't harden your hearts. You know, don't be foolish and stubborn spiritually like that Exodus generation was. And you can, you, you can do the same thing today that they did. You can reach a spiritual plateau and say, well, I'm just happy and I'm satisfied. And the next thing you know, you're just sliding back into spiritual regression and divine discipline and jeopardizing your inheritance again, not your salvation, because you can never, never lose that. But that's the heart of this warning in the, in this particular section. So what the writer is saying there is just as entry into the promised land for the Jews, for the Exodus generation, would have been to realize their ownership and inheritance and the blessing of the land that flowed with milk and honey, they lost that because of spiritual hardness of heart and because of spiritual failure. And that's the analogy. That's that point of rest there that he's talking about, that you and I have a future rest. That's where he concludes when he says in uh, verse, uh, chapter 4, verse 8, For if Joshua had given them rest, then he would not afterward have spoken of another day. You see, there's another rest beyond the rest in the kingdom. There remains, he says, therefore, a rest for the people of God. And that's the challenge. And so he concludes with his challenge. Let us, therefore, in light of all this and understanding their failure, let us be diligent to enter that rest. They weren't diligent. But we need to be diligent that we enter that rest, lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience. Why? How do we do this? It's on the basis of the Word of God. Because the... The Word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and the joints and the marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intent of the heart. So the key idea in that section is to hear what? His voice. It takes us right back to Hebrews 1. 
that in times past, in various ways, God spoke by means of the prophets to the fathers. But today He has spoken through His Son. Are you going to listen? Therefore, don't. Uh, if you will hear His voice, that is the fullness of revelation in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you will hear His voice, don't harden your hearts as they did in the rebellion. So the final exhortation is to enter the rest, and we say, well, how do we do that? And it's on the basis of the Word of God. It is on the basis of the sufficient Word of God. That's all you need. If you were taken today, and you were taken out, and you were dropped down into some backwater, uh, jungle, primitive island in the South Pacific, and all you had was your Bible, then that would be all you need to face any problem, any difficulty you'd ever face. That's it. That's what we mean by the sufficiency of Scripture. You don't need to have counseling textbooks by Freud or any other uh, counselor to figure out personal relationship problems. You don't have to have. Uh, you don't have to learn how to live a purpose-driven life. You don't have to have any of these other things. All you need is the Word of God. That is sufficient. You have the Word of God and the Spirit of God, and we don't need anything else in terms of our spiritual life. So, where does he go from here? Section three. Starting in verse 14, he gives a doctrinal explanation where he takes his concept of a high priest and he starts to unpack that idea. We have a high priest and he's our high priest because he's just like us. He is a true human being. He's not like us because he never had a sin nature, but he's like us in terms of our humanity. And he went through all the same tests that we go through. So that's how he begins the next section, verse 14. Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. See, he picks up that idea from the first chapter. He has gone through the heavens. He's elevated over the angels. He's promoted over the angels. We have this high priest who has been, uh, who's ascended above the angels, and therefore, let us hold fast our confession. In other words, let us hold on to our doctrine. Don't give it up. Doctrine's important. That's what confession re, uh, describes. For, why? Explanation. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. We have a high priest who understands what we've gone through, so we can't really blow a lot of smoke at him. You know, we can't rationalize, justify. He says, been there, done that, but I got the t-shirt. You're not going to get it. You're just, you keep blowing it. Okay, so we have a high priest who can sympathize with our we. He understands what we're going through. And so what's, what's then the exhortation? Let us therefore boldly come to the throne of grace. In prayer, it's dependence upon God to go through those tough times. Now hold your place right here, and I want to take you forward a couple of chapters to chapter 10. Now in chapter 10, we're going to come, we, that's skipping ahead into the fourth section of the book, but I want you to see how these ideas get picked up and woven into the uh, future exposition. We get into the exhortation section in the fourth section, and here's what what we read. Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holy holiest by the blood of Jesus. See, it's the same idea, he's, but he's added something. In, in chapter 4, he's talking about the high priesthood of Christ. Now, then he's going to develop that high priesthood aspect and tie it 
What can we expect? What's he going to tie it to? Got this concept of the blood of Jesus. What's he going to tie it to? He's going to tie it to the sacrificial death of Christ on the cross. A priest performs sacrifice and offerings. That's exactly what we see when we get in chapter 5. What does a priest do? Just the general principle of priesthood in 5.1, that a priest is appointed by God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. So we're going to see these threads are going to be picked up. So by the time we get to that fourth exhortation, therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Christ, by a new and living way which he consecrated for us through the veil that is his flesh, and having a what? A high priest over the house of God. So he's going to come into this and explain for us why all of this is important. And then he says, Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. Let us hold fast the confession. We just heard that, didn't we? Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good deeds. So you see how all this connects. He's building a, a case just one element at a time. He's, he doesn't, uh, he, he's, he's not like Paul. He's not just giving us three or four verses that are just, just loaded with all this intricate theology. He's taking it and he really is just building it one later time, line upon line, precept on precept, here a little, there a little, just giving us that whole methodology. So in chapter 5, after laying out the principle that we have a high priest who we should go to and uh, who takes us before the throne of grace in prayer because we have a high priest who can... Um, sympathize with our weaknesses in the first four verses of chapter 5. All he does is just lay out the simple, general principle that of uh, 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 priesthood, that a priest serves God and offers gifts and sacrifice to God. So, first point in this section is that we have a high priest who's passed through the heavens, therefore hold fast. Don't waver in your devotion to doctrine. There's all kinds of pressures out there to convince you that somehow you can make life work, handle the problems and vicissitudes of life by just caving in and doing it like everybody else does. And the warning is, don't do that. There's too much at stake. Hold fast. We have a high priest who's gone through a judge. He's gone through everything you've gone through, and he gives you access to the throne of God. The general principle on priests emphasizes that priests are called by God. So it's a function of humility. It's not a self-appointed task. They're called by God to serve or to minister to others. See, when we started off tonight, I said pay attention to that vocabulary in 6.9 and 6.10, that our work and our labor and that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. See, that's that whole element of Christian service. And Christian service is not just working at the church, teaching Sunday school. There's a, there's a lot more to it than the superficial way in which it's usually handled. It's any way in which we're serving the Lord in relation to our spiritual gifts as a result of our growth to spiritual maturity. That's what Christian service is. It, it can involve a, a whole host of different manifestations. But that is part of priesthood and so a priest is called by God to serve others and offer gifts and sacrifices to God that's laid out in in those four verses and then it's applied to Christ he didn't glorify himself he didn't step into the position to glorify himself he did it because he was called by God in the same way 
Christ was called by God to serve as a priest, but not on the pattern of the Jewish Aaronic priesthood, but on the pattern of the Melchizedekian royal priesthood. And there's a distinction there. He is a royal high priest on the order of Melchizedek. And there's a quote from Psalm 2, verse 7, and Psalm 110, verse 4. The quote from Psalm 2, 7 emphasizes the royalty reigning aspect. Today, you are my son, today I've begotten you. And Psalm 110, 4 emphasizes the Melchizedekian priesthood. You are a priest forever according to the uh, order of Melchizedek. Now, Having understood that Jesus is this Melchizedekian priesthood, we understand that he qualifies in terms of his obedience. You connect that over to, to the Kenosis passage in Philippians 2, uh, 5 through 8, that Jesus was obedient, humbled himself by being obedient and going to the cross. Now, we have the same idea expressed in Hebrews 5, 8. Though he was a son, that emphasizes his position as the son of God, as deity. Yet, as a human, he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. He had to go through that process of learning humility and learning authority orientation. And if Jesus had to go through that, don't you think we have to go through that? He's already sinless, and he still has to learn obedience through the things that he suffered. We go through the same process, and we've got the additional problem of being fallen creatures. So 5.8 is a key verse that he learned obedience by the things he suffered, and the result is given in verse 9 that having been matured, how was he matured? By going through those tests and the suffering, and having been matured, He became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him. He's called by God as a priest according to the order of Melchizedek, and that's where the writer of Hebrews breaks off at the end of verse 10 because he then just turns around and says, but you can't listen to this. See, there's some doctrine you can't listen to. People come in here, I'm sure this happens, I hear about it every now and then somebody comes in here and goes, well, I sat there and I didn't understand a word that was going on. They're just hip deep in carnality and they can't process even baby food anymore much less anything that gets into uh, any details in in the scripture and I can understand that because if you've gone to any number of so-called Bible teachers or congregations in this city or watching on TV and that's all you've ever heard then when you have somebody come along and actually teach the Bible it's going to blow you away because you never heard anything like that before. And Jesus, and so the writer of Hebrews says, well, you just can't hear it. I have a lot to say. It's hard to explain because you've been become dull of hearing. And so then there is the exhortation beginning in verse, uh, verse 11. The exhortation continues to the end of 620. And it's in the, up to this point, the warnings and exhortations have been together. But here they're going to... Uh, be separate. You have a, an exhortation or challenge, and in the midst of it is the dire warning of the impossibility of repentance in chapter 6, verses 4 through 8. So the exhortation can be summarized. Number one, don't ever be satisfied with where you are spiritually. Press 
forward, press on, hold fast, keep going. Don't become a complacent, satisfied Christian thinking that, well, I've learned enough. There's always more to learn. You'll be, if you get that way, you'll be really surprised when you end up in your resurrection body and discover that you're going to have an eternity of learning. Because you're never going to be, we're never going to be omniscient. Even our resurrection bodies will never be omniscient. But God's omniscient. So he has an infinite amount of stuff to teach us that he can't teach us now. But when we get to heaven, we've got school for infinity. I know that just really depressed some of you right away. Second, there is a dire warning here that you can regress at any moment. You can just be all of a sudden just get complacent, just slip on that spiritual banana peel and fall right on your keister, and then you're just going to have a real tough time recovering. And if you, if you don't recover right away, if you stay there, you can regress and you can lose ground. And third point is it's possible to regress to the point of no return from which you will most likely not recover. Now, that's a tough point for a lot of people. And I'm not saying it's a point of absolute no return. I'm not saying that, that you can reach a point where it just nothing will happen. It is a practical point. It is that you can reach a point in spiritual regression where apart from the intervention of God, you're not going to recover. See, with God, all things are possible, but with us, uh, they're not. And the context we have to understand here is that within the context of, of Hebrews, I didn't put the verse in here, within the context of Hebrews, we're to be encouraging one another. Pay attention to two verses. Hebrews 3.13 said, Exhort one another daily, while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Well, what happens when you get hardened by the deceitful of sin, deceitfulness of sin? Well, then it's going to be impossible for anyone else to really help. You see, when you look at that verse, we get down into the, the five participles in the warning section. The key, the, the, the key to it is understanding that infinitive. It's impossible to renew them again to repentance. There's no subject of the infinitive. There's no grammatical subject of the infinitive. In other words, it doesn't say it's impossible for God to renew them to repentance. It doesn't say it's impossible for Jesus to renew them. There's no stated subject. So it's impossible for whom to renew them to repentance. Well, who's supposed to be doing the encouraging in the book of Hebrews? It's one another. It's part of the the body of Christ, the friends that you have, other believers, uh, family members who encourage you. Not some stranger. You always have people who just... You just get in arrogance and they see somebody across the church and somebody do something or say something and they have no context of relationship and they're just foolish as they can be and they walk up and they say, you know, I want to encourage you to quit doing that. Well, get out of my face. It's none of your business. But there's context of relationship where we have family and we have friends and we see the impact of spiritual regression in their life and because we're in that context of a relationship with them, we are already a, a trusted individual who can then come alongside and encourage them uh, not to fall apart spiritually. But then we always run into the ones who give us that look. And we know that 
no, they're just not going to listen anymore. And that's where the warning comes in. It's impossible for us to renew them to repentance. Uh, Hebrews chapter 10 brings back this theme again in a well-known passage. Uh, let us consider, Hebrews 10.24, let us consider one another in order to stimulate to love and good works. See, again and again we have this thing about love and good works coming up, so we have to really make sure we understand what that's talking about. To stimulate one another to love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as is the manner of some, but exhorting, encouraging one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. But there's always people, and you know them, you've got them in your family, you've seen them in church, that, that you, you know that they've just tubed it spiritually, but they've just put up a wall and you can't do anything anymore. It's in the hands of God, and we have to go to God that the Holy Spirit somehow will take out that spiritual two-by-four and slap them up the side of the head. So, when I say it's a, a point of no return, it's a point of no return from our perspective. It's a point of no return in the sense that, that unless God intervenes, there's not going to be return. And that's what the writer says right here in the context in verse 3. He says, however, with God all things are possible if He permits. Verse 3, and this we will do if God permits. But you see, sometimes God just says, you're carnal, you've just gone through this negative volition thing long enough, I'm just going to leave you in your misery and use you for an object lesson and an opportunity to test all the believers around you. Fifth thing, which I've already covered in most of the detail, is that the concept of being impossible to renew them to repentance, that is change. See, change doesn't come before you confess your sin. It comes after you confess your sin. We need to think in terms of as repentance as not just change of mind, but it's change of mind that results in a change of action. It's change. That's why when you get into uh, some of the passages in Revelation 2 and 3, and they're all commanded to repent, it's not that you go out and you make a one-shot decision to, well, I'm not going to do that anymore. And we've all done that if we're honest with each other. I know I shouldn't do this in my life. I've got to quit eating chocolate. It's making me fat. You know, I can't eat sugar. We make that one-shot decision, and the next day we're just eating sugar again because we're addicted to it. It's the same thing with sin. We're just addicted to it. And so it takes time to and growth for that to sink in and become a part of our life. And every time we fail, we go use 1 John 1, 9, we confess our sins. It's not a license to sin. It's the basis for recovery. It's grace. And only once we confess our sin and we're back in fellowship and have access to the sanctifying ministry of God the Holy Spirit, can we repent as divine good where the Holy Spirit is using it to produce growth? It's not this concept that you need to repent first because if, if, if you're repenting before you're confessing, it's coming out of your what? Sin nature. It's just human good. And human good's never going to produce divine good. And then the sixth thing we see here is that spiritual progress or failure. I mean, it's, it's a question of spiritual progress or failure. The choice is yours. The emphasis is volition. And that's what's emphasized in these five participles in 6, 4, 
through 6a. They all describe the same group of people, and they are believers. They have once been enlightened, meaning regenerated. They have tasted. The word taste means to thoroughly experience. Just as Jesus tasted death for us, he didn't just... Oh, you just got a little, little, little morsel there. No, it means to fully experience death or something. And here it's have tasted the heavenly gift. They're saved. Have been made partakers or partners of the Holy Spirit. Have tasted the good word of God and the power of the age to come and have fallen away. Fallen away means that they have regressed spiritually. So uh, New King James translates it as, it's a, as if they fall away. No, it's they've done all these things and fallen away. It's impossible to renew them again to repentance. Now, the seventh point as we get into this, there's those other verses. We looked at them already. The goal of the spiritual life then is to generate spiritual fruit. That's the thrust of that illustration we studied in verses 7 and 8. For the earth which drinks in the rain... That is, you're like the earth. You take in all the common, all, all the grace of God that He provides in terms of the Spirit of God and the Word of God. That it, you drink it in, and what's the result? It bears herbs. It bears fruit useful for uh, for those by whom it is cultivated and receive blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and briars, that's the regressive believer, the carnal believer, bearing thorns and briars. It's rejected and near to being cursed whose end is to be burned. That's a burn up the loss of rewards. It's non-fruitful, non-productive. So we see here that the goal of the spiritual life is to be productive, to be fruitful. We did a lengthy study. We tied passages together, John 15, with the vine, abiding in Christ. Abiding in Christ is the only way to produce fruit in John 15. Then we connected that to Galatians chapter 5. 16 and following, walk by means of the Spirit. And when you're doing that, you produce the fruit of the Spirit. So the only condition, the only necessary condition to produce fruit in Galatians 5 is to walk by the Spirit. Well, if in John 15, the only condition for producing fruit is to abide in Christ, and in Galatians 5, the sole condition for producing fruit is to walk by the Spirit, then walking by the Spirit and abiding in Christ must be uh, tantamount to the same thing. They're two sides of the same coin. And... What happens, though, and that's related to the to the filling of the Spirit, because the Spirit fills us with His Word. We connected Ephesians 5.18 with Colossians 3.16, that the Spirit is the one who fills us with His Word. When we're out of fellowship, that sanctifying ministry is grieved or quenched. It's shut down. The Spirit's still doing a lot of other things in your life, but He's not producing growth in your life, not forward momentum. That can only happen when you get back in fellowship and start walking in the light as He is in the light, as John says in 1 John chapter 1. And the end result of all this is to produce fruit. But it's not because I'm going out there and pulling myself up by my spiritual bootstraps to produce fruit. That can't happen. Paul tried that in Romans 7. But in Romans 7, he says some interesting things about fruit that are important to pay attention to. He says in verse 4, Therefore, my brethren, you also have become dead to the law through the body of Christ, that you may be joined to another. That is, to him who was raised from the dead. That joining to him who was raised from the dead to Christ is what happened at the baptism of the Holy Spirit. When we trust Christ as Savior, we're identified with him in his death, burial, and resurrection, and we are uh, together, united together with Christ. Why? What's the purpose clause here? That we should bear fruit to God. 
You weren't saved so that you could just spend eternity in heaven and relax. You were saved for a purpose to bear fruit, but not out of the flesh. See, that was the problem uh, that Paul's trying to do in Romans 7 is to do it in the flesh. And he says, for when we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit to death. See, you can bear the wrong kind of fruit. And that's what happens when you're not walking by the Spirit. And in verse 6, Paul goes on to say, But now we have been delivered from the law, having died to what we were held by, that we should what? Serve. See, that's that same concept we're running into in Hebrews 6.10, that we should be involved in ministry and serving in the newness of the Spirit and not the oldness of the letter. That's what energizes that Christian service, however it manifests itself in your particular life and in your particular experience. Ephesians 5.9 says that the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. We're not talking about evangelism. You'll go to all kinds of places and say you need to have fruit. Go out and witness. See, fruit is character. It's the fruit of the Spirit. It's love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, goodness, against which there is no, no law. It's character. It's the character of Christ. You see, we were saved for this purpose, Ephesians 2.10, for we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for what? For good works. There's a purpose to salvation that once you're saved in the family, God's got a job for us. It's to grow to spiritual maturity. The Holy Spirit produces fruit so that we can serve one another in the body of Christ. And we're to walk in those good works. Colossians 1.10 says that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing Him, being fruitful in every good work. There again, we see fruit and work linked together. And we're reminded of Romans 7.5 that there's also the wrong kind of fruit. Now, just to show that work and fruit aren't bad words, 1 Corinthians 3.13 says that at the judgment seat of Christ, each man's work will become evident. Okay, somebody's going to say, well, that's just bad work. No, no, look at verse 14. If any man's work which he has built on it remains, he'll receive a reward. See, work is not a bad word. Fruit is not a bad word. This doesn't involve works by the law, works trying to impress God by what we do or how we say it or how we do it. It's the work of the Holy Spirit in us. And that's the contrast is between the work and the fruit that is self-generated in the power of the flesh and that's which is produced by the Spirit of God in conjunction with the Word of God, and that's the only thing that has eternal value. But to get there, we have to grow to spiritual maturity. It's the byproduct of spiritual maturity, not the way to get spiritual maturity. So that's where the writer of Hebrews goes, because after just blasting them, he says, but we're confident of better things for you. See, it's very positive here. And we'll get to that and open up that and start dealing with this doctrine of works and labor of love, which is introduced in the next verse next time, with our heads bowed and eyes closed. Father, thank you for this time together. Encourage us and strengthen us by your word that we may hold fast and press forward and not become complacent and spiritually lazy. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.